have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is a Class A licensed contractor who has designed and built multi-million dollar commercial and industrial projects and single family homes up and down the East Coast. And now, Ken the Contractor brings his years of experience to the radio. Square footage, meaning when you buy a home, you got 3,000 square feet, you got got 1,000 square feet, whatever. That is the most expensive space we buy. Cubic feet, that's where we start to use our vertical space, is some of the least expensive that we have. Yet, that's probably one of the most underutilized areas in our homes. Do you have a question about your home inside or out? Call Ken the Contractor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another hour of Ken the Contractor. I'm Jim Britt, along with Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor. If you have a question for Ken, you can always reach him at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or you can email your questions to our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. This is not a Riddler question, but I want you to pay attention to it just the same. When is a door not just a door? Now, folks, we have doors around us every place we go, at home, at work, out in the commercial world, visiting shopping malls. We go through doors, we raise doors, we slide doors, but we never think much about them until it comes time to purchase a door. How do you know what to buy, the width, the thickness? To buy an insulated or a non-insulated door. How about a solid core door or a hollow core door? Do we need to buy wood, fiberglass, metal? What about the hardware needs for those things? What about the jam? You know, it's easy to be confused today when you look at all the products that are available in the market. And whether we are building new, remodeling, or just trying to take care of normal maintenance on our house, you show up at the hardware store, you go down to the lumber yard, and they start asking you all of these questions. You're saying, Folks, I don't know. I just need a door. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the differences here and some things you might be prepared to deal with depending on what your particular situation happens to be. You do need to understand that doors are not as simple as they were, I want to say, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and some of you live in older homes that were built in that time period. In most cases, we had solid core doors back in those decades and older. These were doors, in some cases, it would be wood stave doors made of solid wood pieces actually put together. Today we're in an industry that allows us to use wood, to use synthetic wood, to have hollow core, which means we have cardboard stuffed inside some of these doors, filling the voids, thin veneers on the doors. We may only have a three-quarter to an inch-and-a-half style around the perimeter of these. They don't take a lot of use. They don't take a lot of abuse before they fall apart. But the market covers so many things and opportunities and options and price points for us today. If you happen to be in an older home and you're looking to replace a door of like kind, chances are pretty good you're going to be spending a great deal of money for that. You're not going to find this to be one of those $30, $40 slabs that you can pick up and put in place. One of the things I do want to tell you when it comes to replacing old-style doors, you may look at some of the recycling centers in your area. These are companies that will go out and purchase or perhaps just salvage from old homes being demolished Doors, mantles, uh, brick, windows, items that can be reused in homes of that particular era. And you may find that's a good deal for you. But if not, you're going to be looking for a higher-priced door produced by lumber manufacturers or door manufacturers in many of the lumber and door facilities today that are going to be solid wood. They're going to be wood stave doors, and again, that's where they're placed together. If you've got a panel door, the panel's actually going to be routed and fitted within these styles so that you can mimic that same look. Now, if you're not in that situation, you're saying, 
I've got a home. I need to replace a door on the inside. The vast majority of homes constructed over the last 30 years are going to have interior doors that are hollow core. Masonite is a company brand. There are many others that are out there, but you hear a lot of people call it a Masonite door. That is a brand name. That is not a door style. Again, there are plenty of producers in the market that make these. But if you're just trying to match that, you're going to find them as common as sand. You're going to be able to go out there at any of the lumber yards and find that particular door slab. But again, it's hollow. If you want to have a door that's going to last a little longer, maybe take up for a little more abuse. You've got kids throwing baseballs around inside the house, for example, swinging the golf club in there as you're practicing occasionally. Then you can put the same style door in, but go for a solid core. Now, these solid core doors are typically going to cost anywhere from 10 to $20 more. They look the same, but they take a lot more punishment. Even these little hinge stops that we place on a hinge to keep a door from swinging all the way back in a place we can't put a wall bumper, some of you are nodding your head right now saying, yeah, there's a hole in my door because it's hollow because of that hinge stop. If you replace that with a solid core door, it will not happen again. You pay 10 to $20 more for that slab. So there really is something to a door. When you get ready to replace a door and you go to the supply house, you want to ask these questions of what type of doors do you have? What am I buying here? If it's not readily available to you, what's this pricing all about? Is it hollow? Is it solid? If it's solid, is it particle core? Is it a wood stave door? Because that will drive your price. Are you looking for a panel door, a flush door? Are you going to paint the door or stain the door? That can double the price of the door if you're going to stain it and you're looking for an oak or a beech or birch or some particular veneer that is a high-quality stained grade. If you're going to paint the door, folks, there's no reason to spend double the price for a stained grade door. So these are all questions you need to be asking. One big item that I see people do over and over again, they buy an interior door, put it on the outside wall, looks great for six months, they paint it, the weather still gets to it, and it starts delaminating. Interior doors are not made for outside use. If you're going to spend any money at all, buy the right door for the right location, and be sure you have one made to weather the elements when you paint it. And this is overlooked so often. I'm going to tell you, you read the fine print from the manufacturer and warranty. And it's not just about your warranty, but it's about performance. When you paint that door, paint it before you hang it. Paint the bottom of the door. Paint the top of the door. Paint the area where the hinge is attached to the door to prevent moisture from getting inside that door. It's going to last you a long time. It's going to perform well. You're going to find you have minimal problems with it expanding and contracting due to outside moisture if you do that. If you fail to do it, you're asking for trouble down the road. Some other things you just need to know in general, when you go down, if you've got a pocket door, that's a unique type of hardware. It's going to be difficult for you to get off or on, perhaps. Talk to your hardware supplier about that if you've got to replace a pocket door because today we've got doors that slide. We have doors that go up vertically. They move horizontally. They're biparting doors. They're swing doors. They have two hinges. They have three hinges. They have four hinges. If you don't have the wherewithal to, to mortise these for the hinges, you also need to look at the lock set, the back set on that. Is it two and three-eighths? Is it two and three-quarter? Uh, is it a fully mortised hardware? Because if you don't have the wherewithal, you may want to talk to either your hardware and door supplier about doing this for you, or you certainly want to bring in a pro who can make it look right, because you're going to spend a lot of money for the door, and you're going to spend a lot of time butchering the door, and it still won't work. So think about when it's time to hire a pro. There really is something to a door. Well, yeah, we just replaced some interior doors. makes a dramatic difference. I think you'd probably agree with me on this. Oftentimes when homes are built, uh, contractors or home builders will use some really basic doors. They're referred to as builder's grade, and exactly. that's because of the economy. And generally, it's the hollow core door that I just talked about. 
Well, we had to we had to replace it because we had one of those holes. Somebody was playing baseball, or somebody got mad. I'm not sure. But not golf only, club. Yeah. Not only that, but also did the did the trim around the doors made a tremendous difference. Yeah. So you changed the casing, maybe from a, a basic two and a quarter to a little wider to a three and a quarter, a little deeper on the profile. Didn't cost a lot of money. You went back with a solid core door, fit the same hinge profile, so you didn't have to redo the jam. And yet, not only in soundproofing, but just style, it changes the way the room looks. Yeah, it made a dramatic, dramatic difference. Coming up this hour on this week's edition of Ken the Contractor, in a half hour from now, Ken in his In the News segment is going to talk about energy efficiency and software. And also, coming up one-on-one with Ken the Contractor at the bottom of the hour, we're going to talk about more windows and doors as we continue with this edition of Ken the Contractor. Don't forget, our contact number is 800-614-2975. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. I'm Jim Britt along with Ken Patterson. Ken the Contractor, do you have a question about your home inside or out? Looking for a professional answer? This is the program that brings you the professional answer to questions about your home. This is Ken the Contractor. You've got a couple of different ways that you can forward your questions to Ken. You can either email them to us at kenthecontractor.com or give us a call at 800-614-2975. Got an email question, Ken, that comes to us out of the state of Florida. Yeah, this one comes to us from Roger in Gainesville. And he said, I recently retired and moved from Indiana to Florida. In Indiana, everyone had a basement. My wife and I have been living in an apartment until we can build our retirement home here. As I start to meet with builders, I'm told no one builds a basement here. I know from your website you're a licensed contractor in Florida. I want your opinion. Can I build a basement here? Well, Roger, I'm going to tell you, you can do anything, almost anywhere, for enough money, and if you want to deal with some of the potential issues that come with it. One of the things for those of us that travel around, and in in my particular business, being exposed to different building codes, soil conditions, and just home styles from one part of the country to the next, is that many of those home styles and the technology that we use are there for a reason. And in the northern part of the country, in some places in the Midwest, even in the West Coast, we'll find that basements are not uncommon. That largely has to do, again, with our soil conditions, the elevation or the level of the water table in the ground, and the ability for a site to drain properly. In your case, Roger, the fact that you have moved from Indiana to Florida, you are now in an area I'm quite familiar with. You're dealing with, for the most part, especially in Gainesville, central Florida, fairly sandy soil. You don't have a lot of clay content. You don't have a lot of rock content. And you're dealing with land that is relatively flat. You also are trying to cope with a water table that is pretty close to the surface. Now, in some parts of the country, the water table could be 20 feet below the surface. But in so much of Florida, not necessarily Gainesville, but close to any coastal region, Florida, the Gulf Coast, the Atlantic Coast, the water table could be six inches to one or two feet below the surface of the ground. This has a lot to do with why contractors, both in residential and commercial properties, will install basements or not. So my answer to your question is, in Florida, can I build a basement? Yes, you can build a basement. But you're going to spend a large sum of money to do it, and you're going to spend a fair amount of money to keep the water out of that basement with pumps and other drainage methods. Now, in and around the Gainesville area, you could be living on a slope. There are some gentle and rolling hills in that area. You may be on the side of one of those. If you are, this would be the best-case scenario for you because you could do a walkout basement. You're still going to have to be sure that the contractor drains the soil properly, collects that water, and moves it around the basement so that the other three sides are not inundated during the heavy rainy season and the high water table. My overall recommendation in Florida, 
and any coastal area, Louisiana, Alabama, along the immediate coast areas with high water tables. Stay away from basements. Think about going up. In many cases, you can generate the space you need by going up. If this were to be a shop, for example, then you need to go out and build either freestanding or an attached garage or shop to the house. I think you're money ahead doing that, and you eliminate the potential of so many problems by putting a basement in a high-water table area. Very good. And if you have a question for us, you can email it, as our last gentleman just did, to KenTheContractor.com or give us a call. And we've got one of those calls right now. It's from Denise, who listens to Ken the Contractor in Reading on WEEU. Hi, Denise. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. I have a problem uh, fixing a toilet. I have a leaky toilet, and my directions I've been following say turn off the water and then drain, uh, flush and drain the the tank, and it will not flush once I turn off the water. What do I do next? Tell me first, what part are you replacing? Is this the flap or the uh, the interior of the tank itself? There was some kind of little washer thing that, uh, as, as I recall, was the next step to do. Since I couldn't locate just one of the washers, I got the whole little thing that goes in there, the uh, complete little... Okay, so you have a complete replacement kit for Correct. the interior of the tank Correct. itself. Correct. And, and your leak was at the base of that pipe where it makes contact with the tank and where the water supply comes in? Yes. Once you turn the water off and you have a valve below the fixture in the wall that you can shut the main water supply off? Correct. You've turned it off there. Have you been able to get the water out of the tank? No, that's the okay. problem. I, I can right. flush it and drain it. Do you still have the chain attached to the flapper that's yes. in the bottom? Yes. That's all clean water. You can simply yes. reach in there and just pull that up, and the water should drain out of the tank. It will flush. Okay. That's what they're telling you to do there. What it'll do is go through the bowl, and you're going to drain that water out. It can't refill because you have turned the water supply off. So, right. so, again, just be sure that's off. Now, when you get through with that, you're going to find that there's a small amount of water, maybe a half inch of water still left in the bottom. So you may need to take a sponge or some paper towel, something along those lines, and completely absorb that water because when you take the nut off the threaded portion of the fill line, that water is going to leak out on your floor. All right. Because the leak you have, if I follow you correctly, is where the fill line comes into the tank. Is that correct? All right. So if you follow those steps and dry it up because you want it dry also when you put the fitting back on and you tighten it up, then... Turn the water back on and check it for leaks. Okay. So you're doing just the reverse. But that's what they mean by draining that. It will drain if you just reach in and pull that flapper up. It'll still go down into the bowl. Okay. Think that helps you? I certainly hope so, yes. Sounds well, like it's good. Okay. <laughs> well, give that a try. Don't over-tighten the fitting because you can break the, the toilet bowls. Right. Just finger-tight it. You may want to go just a little more than that, but not much. Uh, if you put a wrench on it or a pair of pliers and you over-tighten it, you can break the porcelain. But okay. follow the instructions from there. Turn the water back on. Don't run off and leave it. You want to check it and be sure you've resolved your leak before you go anywhere else, leave the house, or do anything like that. All righty. We thank you for listening. We appreciate your call. Thank you for being there and answering. Have a good one. Take care. Bye. Thank you, Denise. And don't forget, if you do have a question for Ken, 800-614-2975 is our contact number. That's 800-614-2975 or email us questions at kenthecontractor.com. Got time for one other quick email, and this one comes to us from Rosemary in Virginia. She wants to know about building on bedrock, Ken. Yeah, she said in your last show you talked quite a bit about rock 
problems related to foundations. And she has a comment. She goes on and says, I just want to say that sometimes building on bedrock is good in her experience. Said my grandmother's home was built by her father on pure bedrock and hasn't moved an inch in a hundred years. She said, of course, they did have a bit of time adding indoor plumbing later on. Well, just to elaborate and go back for other listeners, Rosemary, the, the the biggest issue in building on rock is not so much on rock, but is splitting where your foundation is, where part of it is on rock and part of it happens to be on a clay or a compacted sandy soil, depending on what's natural in your, in, uh, your particular area. The fact that those elements move at different rates is the problem. And most soil engineers will tell you that. So if for any of you putting in a new foundation, if part of it is on rock, part of it happens to be on compacted soil of t- some type that's structurally sound, you still want to over-excavate that rock, break it off. You want to be sure you've got some rock dust or some other compacted materials that your soil engineer in your area would approve, and then pour that foundation so that any movement is uniform because as you continue to impose these heavier loads as you build your structure, In spite of your best efforts, it's going to move. It may be a fraction of an inch, but it's going to move, and you don't want those cracks. Would you like to join us on the program? You can. Do you have a question for Ken? It's 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. And don't forget about our website, KenTheContractor.com. You'll find a lot of very helpful information right there. Some of the most often asked questions that Ken deals with on the program, roofs, basement, windows, plumbing, siding, accessible living, heating, masonry, leaks, painting, ventilation, all in one spot on the web. All you have to do is go to KenTheContractor.com. You can friend us on Facebook. Facebook at Ken the Contractor, and follow us on Twitter at Ken Answers. Or give us a call, 800-614-2975, or forward your emails to KenTheContractor.com. Welcome back to Ken the Contractor. I'm Jim Britt, along with Ken Patterson. He is Ken the Contractor. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. If you've got a question about your home inside or out, that's 800-614-2975. You can also reach him through his website. That's Ken the Contractor. Dot com. One of the things that we try to keep tabs on are some of the latest changes and innovations in universal living, which is becoming a bigger and bigger issue for all of us. And universal living today is for all ages and in all locations, and it means just what it implies. It makes things more accessible to us in our homes, whether it's a matter of opening a door or ease of using a shower or just accessing a set of stairs. Today we're going to talk a moment about grab bars. And yes, I said grab bars, and I know a lot of you are rolling your eyes saying, well, all I can think of are hospitals right now. No, we're not talking that. Grab bars has taken on a life of its own, meaning that you see them in all kinds of styles and colors. They're designed today to fit any decor. They are designed to go in our homes, not just the old industrial, and I'll use that term loosely, but really uh, medical grab bars that we have seen for decades in hospitals and medical buildings. And what the industry realizes is that these are convenience items. They're not just for those of us from time to time that may have infirmities or disabilities that require us to use those, but for everybody from the youngest member to the oldest member in the household. Grab bars have, are not only designed to be used in the traditional locations of, let's say, showers, bathrooms, uh, around toilet areas, if you will, but they are now designed to be used in conjunction with stairs and access points of minimal steps. So if you're thinking a little bit about how you can get past an area that's a problem to you, do you need to steady yourself occasionally? Have you got a youngster uh, that may need uh, assistance from time to time? Or just in that shower and you want to grab hold of something, 
occasionally, a grab bar might be for you. And you're also sitting there thinking, that's great, Ken. I've got a fiberglass shower. I don't have any blocking in the wall. How am I going to install a grab bar? The good news is that because the industry has really paid attention to how we're using these, not just for medical purposes, they have developed systems that allow you to secure and properly secure to handle the weight and the load grab bars in fiberglass walls on these acrylic or fiberglass tub shower units. So there's not likely to be a place in your home that you cannot install a grab bar vertically, horizontally, diagonally. They mount to the floor. They actually mount to the ceiling. There's no matter, you know, if there's a place you would have a need for it, you can find a grab bar or an assisted device like that to work for you. So don't let somebody tell you it's not made because I'm telling you as a professional, they're designed to go in almost every place that you have a need for one. Again, whether it's for medical purposes or just to make it easier to get around in your home. Do people make one mistake, though, and that is, as you mentioned, they've given these almost universal applications. But, and it's something you had mentioned a little bit early on another one of our programs, make sure what you're anchoring it to can support the weight because in a lot of cases, particularly if you're getting up out of a tub or something else, it's dead weight. So it has to be fairly strong of what you're attaching it to. The grab bar itself may not be the problem. Yeah, the grab bar typically will not be. What you don't want to use are these hollow wall anchors. When you put a grab bar in, you have to recognize that it needs to be installed to carry your full body weight, whether you're pulling on it horizontally, if it's a wall-mounted device, or from a sheer standpoint, if you're, almost as if you're trying to raise your whole body off the floor by pressing down on it. Most building codes will require that it resist at least 300 pounds of pressure. And some may be more than that, some slightly less, but that's typically what you're talking about. And that means it needs to be mounted firmly into a wood stud, into a floor joist if it's overhead, uh, into blocking that's placed in the wall. But I go back to a comment I made, though, regarding hollow fiberglass tub shower units, that even in these applications, if you purchase the right device and there are kits designed for these, those grab bars can be made to withstand all of the code requirements and make you safe. But don't have a false sense of impression for uh, or safety for you or someone else simply by installing it with hollow anchors or into a fiberglass wall. All right. Our contact number again is 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. That's the number Lisa dialed, and she joins us right now. She's got a question. Hey, Lisa, you're on the air with Ken the Contractor. I have a ceiling question. Okay. Our house, our house was uh, born in 1967. We've lived in it uh, for the past six-plus years, and it has a grid-type ceiling. I've never seen one before. Um, there's no, um, you know, there's no metal grid to hold the individual squares up, and it's like a, I guess, I haven't measured it, but it looks like a 12 by 12 square. Is it probably a 9 by 9 or a 12 by 12? Yeah, yeah. And is this, is, it, 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 you see lines in that pattern, and it, yeah. this is probably a tongue and groove system. Okay. Well, and what concerns me, uh, two things. It's, it's sagging in a couple areas, and I don't understand it, so I don't know how it's put up there. But, um, and also, at any given time, could we replace it, and would we have to take it completely down, or would we have to just put something over it? If you're describing what I think you are, and I'll, let me give you just briefly a little more information, uh, these tiles are consistent in size. They appear to be a tile, and you've got a line in that 12 by 12 pattern, and it's slightly, uh, where the line occurs, it's slightly recessed or maybe beveled? Yes. Okay. This is most likely a stapled ceiling tile, meaning 
that either there's solid plywood behind it or it's installed on some type of a furring strip system. And these are common. Uh, they're still being used today, but they were common, especially in the 60s and 70s. Uh, the, the good news is that you can, uh, you can replace a single tile and not replace the whole ceiling. The bad news is you're not likely to match that exact mm-hmm. tile pattern. And right. there's a little work to it. Because they are tongue and groove, that means that one interlocks into the other, and they keep going until you hit the sidewall, and then you've got a square cut at the sidewall, and then they're typically trimmed at that point. And you probably have some type of a wood trim right at the wall that, that seals yeah. this. Okay. So it's this is like a, a puzzle piece. If you start in the middle, um, if it's interlocking, I mean, if it were square edge, that's fine. What I would suggest is you find an area, and I doubt that this is just square edge, all that I'm familiar with are a tongue and groove. But if you can find a closet or some area out of the way and remove one starting at the side, because that's going to be a square cut where it abuts the wall, pull okay. that first tile out and you'll see how it interlocks. And if it does, then it's going to be difficult to replace those out in the middle. You can cut them out. In most cases, the product you can cut even with a razor knife and you can replace it. Uh, you may see it. Have you repainted this ceiling or is it still the original color? It's still the original color. I mean, there's a couple areas I think that the former owners painted, maybe because of a little leak. Some water stains? Yes. Sure, okay. Well, the ceilings can be painted, and if you have a lot to repair, that's probably what you'd want to look at. You can buy the tile, but you're not going to match the color the same. There's aging to it and so forth, but you're not going to find the exact same pattern match. Uh, Take a razor knife, cut those out. And then you can today you can glue those back in place so you don't have fasteners running through them with construction adhesives. That would be a quick and simple repair. The the right way to do it long term means you take it out from the wall coming all the way back in, tie the tongue and groove back in, staple those to the furring strip behind them. That's how it was put up most likely. If you okay. for the sagging tiles that you have, they mm-hmm. may have simply released from the wood or the furring strip behind them. Mm-hmm. And without tearing the ceiling out, I would go through with a surface fastener. Now, that's going to put a hole in it. I would slightly recess that, and then you can okay. take a caulk or a, or a drywall compound and touch that head up and then touch it up with paint, because if it's stained from sagging anyway, you're going to have to paint it to begin with. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for the call. Mm-hmm. Take care. Thank you, Lisa. We do appreciate your call. Don't forget, you can always reach Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, at 800-614-2975. That's a contact number. It's 800-614-2975. And while you're online, go to Ken's website. Find a whole bunch of home improvement information right there online at KenTheContractor.com. We'll take a quick break and come right back with more. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor, and each weekend of this time, he answers the questions that are important to today's homeowner. If you'd like to join us right here on the program, you can dial 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or you can email us your questions at KenTheContractor.com. Time now for our In the News weekly segment. Each week, Ken brings you products, trends, and services that are important for you to make informed decisions about your home maintenance, and also remodeling and new construction. Well, this week's In the News is something that you want to share with your builder, and it's really designed more for professionals, but many of the contractors out there are not into the technology the way others are, and I want you to be up to speed with this. This has to do with designing your home or remodeling or doing your addition so that it's much more energy efficient. Now, DuPont has created the DuPont CodeSense Durable Wall Builder. Now, this is a digital tool that takes the code 
and or standard code year, for example, the International Residential Code 2006, 2009, 2012, there are different codes and different years. It also factors in the climate zone where your house is being built and the home's facade. Now, by that we mean is it brick veneer? Does it have vinyl siding? Do you have wood siding on it? Are you over two by fours, two by sixes? All of those elements come into play here. And based on this criteria, it generates a report that outlines the relevant air, water, and thermal qualities, or requirements rather, and offers guidance on how to build a durable wall assembly using the various products that DuPont and others produce in the marketplace. Now, why this is helpful is it gives you an opportunity, along with your builder up front, to determine some options that may make your home even more energy efficient than the standard construction in your area. And it may be as simple as changing the house wrap that's on the exterior of the framework. So, again, this is something that you may not use, but I want you to be sure and share this with your builder. It's called DuPont CodeSense Durable Wall Builder. You'll find it's very helpful. And if you want more information, you can visit the DuPont site by going to DurableWall.Tyvek, that's T-Y-V-E-K, dot com. Let's go to the phones right now at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. It's Bruce who's ready to join us. Appears he's got a uh, finicky hot water heater. Hi, Bruce. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling. I just walked into the office uh, here at the radio, and I hope I'm not too off topic. But I have a, a hot water heater. Are you willing to talk about that? Sure, let's go for it. Okay, thank you. Um, just it was really going crazy, steaming the water overly hot. I mean, really giving us a rough time, like in the shower and the sink and all that. Um, I changed the um, thermostats. Okay. And now it seems to be fine, And but my wife said the water is still a little cold, so I went down and just adjusted a little knob. And when I did, it kicked that little red button off. Okay. So... Um, then I push the re- reset the button again, and uh, it keeps on kind of doing that. Any advice there? Well, how high did you turn the temperature? Oh, just um, what, what one between one twenty and one forty, I guess. Okay, you you if you're down around one twenty, I'd say you shouldn't have a problem. Most of these come from the factory. If you're buying a new hot water heater, uh, they're going to be preset at around one hundred and ten to one hundred and twelve degrees or so from the factory. And they are designed, I think they'll go up to about 140. Some may go to 150 degrees, which is really scalding. You don't need, nobody needs it that hot. No, no, no. But once you reach a point that, in my experience, you you turn any of them up to 130 or better, uh, you're going to have some issues with that. I would do this first. I would turn it back down. If she wanted it a little bit warmer, maybe take it up five degrees or so above where you were and see if that doesn't hold. Uh, they are quite sensitive. There are other issues that can develop. Uh, there, is this an old water heater? Could you? Uh, it's Probably 10 years old, yeah. Okay. Do you have a lot of mineral deposits or buildup in it, or have you checked when you drained it and replaced this, the yeah, element? It was, it was real heavy when we did the elements a few okay. years ago. Well, that will have some bearing on it, too, on the, the inside of that water heater and how these elements respond to that. Also, it has to do with the clearance. Is this a bottom element or top element? The top. Okay. Well, you're not as likely to have as much in terms of chemical buildup around that as you do in the bottom. Right. But you can on the inside of the tank. The clearance around those elements will have something to do with the sensitivity and the temperature in that. We've experienced all kinds of strange and weird problems with these. And my first suggestion, this is where I would be with this, is just turn it up just a little bit at a time and see where this holds. Could also be this, the thermostat itself 
is a little weaker than others. No different than putting a new breaker in an electrical panel. Right. Okay. What, real quick, one more thing. At the the initial problem, when water was real hot, we'd come down and it would overflow. It would have that little yeah, drainage the pi- thing, and it, the it, whole it, utility room would be steamy, like real hot in there. Yeah. Well, what was happening there is it was doing what it was supposed to. There's a pressure relief valve that's on top, and if it gets too hot or there's too much pressure in there, it's going to pop off. Well, thank goodness. And that's exactly what it was doing. It keeps the thing from cracking and doing other more serious items. So it's there for a safety reason. And anytime you or others see that, that tells you you've got a problem. Where you may not realize it, you may also have a problem with high pressure from your municipality. I've seen that occur, too, that will just blow right through the water heaters. Okay, well, thank you for your comments, and um, I'll start at the beginning and work my way up. Thank Always you. keep it simple. Thanks for the call. Bye. Thank you, Bruce. Well, we've got time for a quick email from KenTheContractor.com. deals with fire extinguishers. Yeah, this comes to us from Claude in Sugar Grove, West Virginia. said, I saw a recent TV story about the proper use of home fire extinguishers. I have four in my home. They've been here for several years. Now, after seeing the TV story, I looked at all four, and I see that three have a needle in the green position and one that is not. Is that one bad, or will it work? And do I uh, see? Do I throw them away if the needle is not in the green, or can they be repaired? The TV story did not tell me anything about the life of these. Well, I happened to see the same news article, and I thought it was great in terms of how to use it because so many folks don't understand the proper use of a fire extinguisher. But clearly, just like this show, there are times we'd like to do more, so I'm going to carry on with that. Fire extinguishers have a life cycle to those, and not only the extinguisher proper, the canister, but the chemical that's on the inside. The general rule of thumb is that fire extinguishers need to be serviced once a year. You're going to find that in most workplaces where OSHA requires that it have a current certificate on that, but that's not that doesn't hold true in our homes in terms of inspection. So it's a good rule of thumb that once a year we pay attention to those. We make sure that we do have a needle that's in the green zone, not the yellow or not off the chart, like I've seen on occasion, because when you need it, you need it, folks. I hope you never do. But if it doesn't discharge, then it's just been taking up space, and you're relying on something that's insurance that just isn't there. Most fire extinguishers can be serviced. You'll find a company in in many areas that will take these and recharge them for a nominal fee, and it's going to be less money than buying a new extinguisher. Now, some that are extremely old probably cannot be refilled, and you'll have to buy a new canister for that. But the more modern ones can be refilled for many years. And I encourage all of you that are listening to us right now, if you've got a fire extinguisher, whether it's in your car, in your truck, in your boat, one or two or more inside your house, and I hope you have all these places covered, that you go take a look at them. And I also will put a date on mine the last time they were serviced. Even though I may not have an official tag like OSHA requires in office buildings, I've got a service date. And if you're taking it to an authorized service dealer to have those recharged, they're going to put a tag on them for you so you know when the last time was they were serviced. You know, I think that's an excellent point because for a lot of folks, you just put that fire extinguisher there and it could be years before you ever use it and you'd never think of looking at it until unfortunately you need it. I have had the need for one, one time in my home and I was glad it worked. We had a simple grease fire, but you know what? It was there. Made a mess, but it put the fire out. We had no damage whatsoever. Very good. Claude, we hope that helps you out and we appreciate your email question. Don't forget, you can forward your questions to Ken to our website at kenthecontractor.com or you can give us a call at 1-800-614-2975. That'll wrap up this hour of Ken the Contractor. For Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, I'm Joe Britt. Thanks for joining us and we'll look forward to talking with you next time right here when we bring you another edition of Ken the Contractor.
You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. Every weekend at this time, Ken the Contractor, Ken Patterson is here taking your calls. Don't forget, you can friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow him on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you're looking for home improvement information at any time, go to KenTheContractor.com. 